0: 60. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home. That's our gift to you. Well, here in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34, we see a, a sort of continuation for the argument or the, the case that Paul is making for the coming resurrection of the dead. And if you haven't been with us for a few weeks, um, you, you may want to go back and listen to, because this is, this is sort of building on what we've seen previously. Uh, just a little review. In verses one to eleven, Paul is arguing for the reality of Christ's resurrection. Christ was raised from the dead. It is a an objective historical fact. He was raised in accordance with the scriptures. There were eyewitnesses. There was the empty tomb, uh, and, and, and these all bear witness to the reality of his resurrection. But interestingly, in verses twelve to twenty eight, we see that Paul is uh, that that the Corinthians they weren't necessarily denying Christ's resurrection. Uh, Therefore, Paul's reason for writing uh, this portion of the letter in 1 Corinthians 15 wasn't to argue for Christ's bodily resurrection. It was to argue for our bodily resurrection at his return. Uh, and this is what we talk about, what we confess every single week as we gather as a church family and confess uh, in the Apostles' Creed our belief in the resurrection of the body. Uh, and so last week in, in verses 12 to 28, we saw Paul arguing for the claim that Christ's resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. It's the beginning, the dawning of our resurrection that will take place when he returns. According to Paul, what took place 2,000 years ago will take place uh, with our bodies, all of Christ's followers. When he returns, it will take place with this entire Cosmos, when, when Jesus returns, he will uh, wrap up and finish this project of cosmic renewal. Everything will be made new, and that began with his resurrection uh, in the empty tomb in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. And he will reign, we will reign with Christ forever in resurrected bodies on a glorified earth. That's our final hope as Christians. And to deny this hope, which the Corinthians were doing, is a serious problem to Paul, um, as it should be. And so in verses 12 to 19, Paul is kind of arguing for the resurrection of Christ's followers uh, by showing them the consequences we would face if there is no resurrection of the body. He tells them that if there's no bodily resurrection, then Christ's bodily resurrection did not take place. And if Christ's bodily resurrection did not take place, then we are all liars and hopeless fools and we're still in our sins and death is it for us and we should be pitied. And then in verses 20 to 28, he shows the connection between Christ's resurrection and ours. Christ's resurrection, he says, which is a reality, it is a historic, uh, historical objective fact. He says that resurrection was the first fruits of our resurrection. As, as sure as Christ has been raised, we will be because his resurrection is the beginning of ours. In Christ's resurrection, God's cosmic renewal project will be completed when Christ returns uh, and, and And uh, his resurrection is that cosmic renewal project breaking into this age. Uh, what What took place in that empty tomb in Jerusalem will take place with our bodies and with the entire earth when Christ returns renewed heaven, renewed earth, renewed bodies. Everything will be overcome with resurrection life when Christ returns. And then here in verses 29 to 34, Paul kind of returns to the style of argument that he was making in verses 12 to 19. He's showing the Corinthians, again, some of the consequences for our lives as Christians if there is no bodily resurrection coming. And it's a strange text. Um, it's it. Yeah, we can just say that it's, it's a strange text. He's kind of closing this portion of his argument, um, and he's he's making a number of quick, rapid-fire supporting points uh, in in support of his main point. And he's asking some rhetorical questions. And the supporting points are are not so much based on the objective reality of Christ's resurrection like they were before. They're kind of an appeal to the, the some of the special interests that we have as Christians. And so it's a strange text for that reason. But we also see it's a strange text for another reason. Uh, as, as you'll see, Paul says some things that remain somewhat unclear to us. Uh, he mentions a particular practice some of, the, uh, some of the Corinthians were availing themselves to, and we're kind of left scratching our heads in regards to what he might mean. But this text also brings uh, this central doctrine, the central belief of Christians of the resurrection of the body to bear upon the here and now in such a potent way and the way that we live now in such a potent way. Paul shows how the resurrection and the life to come just completely changes the way that we live as Christians right now. And so let's look at the text. If you want to stand with me for the reading of God's holy and precious word, we're looking at 1 Corinthians 15, 29 to 34. Let's listen with reverence and joy because this is the voice of our God. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the coming reality of our resurrection. And when Christ returns, we will be raised from the dead and we will live forever with him in uh, glorified bodies on a glorified earth. And we thank you that you've given us assurance that that day will come by raising Christ from the dead as the first fruits of our resurrection. And we pray that uh, that belief, that Hope that that would stir us up now to live lives of hope and of sacrifice and of sobriety and holiness. That you would help us to live by a certain resurrection ethic that would bear witness to the reality that you are the God who raises the dead. Lord, would you help us to live in such a way now and would you, and would you use this text, would you use this sermon to, to impart that uh, life-giving resurrection power to us right now, Lord, so that we can live for your glory and for the good of our neighbor. Lord, uh, would you let the words of my m- mouth and the meditation of, of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You can have a seat. So I want to take a moment um, to, to, I want you to take a moment to consider something. Um, what makes sense of your life? Uh, what, what makes you tick? You know, if you, if you sit down with with someone that you're meeting for the very first time and they ask you, what makes sense of your life? What makes you tick? Uh, uh, imagine that it's a a peer at work or uh, some, you know, kind of a random person you meet at a coffee shop, so, someone along among those lines, uh, and they ask you, what makes sense of your life? What makes you tick? What keeps your life going? What keeps you going in this life? And some common answers that you hear might, might be something like this. Uh, my job. My, my job is really important to me. I find a lot of satisfaction in my work, I worked really hard to get to where I am, or, or I'm, I am working really hard to get to uh, a certain vocation. Uh, I find a lot of significance in my work. It makes me tick. It, makes, it keeps me going. It, it makes sense of my life. And of course, you know, working hard is, is a good thing. It's really important. It's not a bad thing to desire a certain vocation. Vocation is a calling. It's one that we receive from God, whether we're custodians or doctors or military or some other honorable profession um others might say uh, my family my 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 family makes sense of my life everything i do i do for the sake of my family my my spouse my children my siblings my parents they make sense of my life they they keep me going and of course loving and serving your family is a, is a very good thing to do uh, another one might be and 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 this is something probably not many would Id, Id, admit to themselves let alone admit it to others but um might it might be pursuing a life of comfort and pleasure the job, the family, uh, everything else are all just props and means to an end of living a comfortable life in a comfortable home, having a, a comfortable chair to sit in while you uh, distract yourself to death with an endless amount of mind-numbing entertainment, uh, living a, a life of comfort and pleasure and ease. Maybe one of those might be close to, to what your answer would be. Maybe not. Uh, but, but what we see in this text is that what makes sense of our lives as Christians is not our jobs, it's not our families, it's not our callings, it's, it's not living a comfortable life, it's not anything else. And, and some of those things are good things, obviously, but they're not what makes sense of our lives as Christians. According to Paul here, and this is our big idea for the morning, the resurrection of the dead makes sense of our lives as Christians. The resurrection of the dead makes sense of our lives as Christians. As Christians, we are called to live lives of hope, and sacrifice and holiness for the sake of, for the glory of, for the cause of Christ. And that only makes sense if he was raised from the dead and if we will be raised with him when he returns. Being raised from the dead and living with Christ on a glorified earth and glorified bodies is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. Our most certain hope as Christians is that what took place with Christ 2,000 years ago in this empty tomb will take place with our bodies when he returns. And that in our glorified bodies, we will live on a glorified earth forever with Jesus. But we, are, we only have certainty that that will be the outcome of our lives because Christ was raised from the dead as the first fruits of our resurrection two thousand years ago in Jerusalem. The text shows that there's a, a direct connection between what we as Christians believe about the future and, 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 and the way that we live right now. The resurrection of the dead makes sense of our lives as Christians. And we'll consider that by big idea as we look at number one, a, a hope-filled practice in verse 29. Uh, number two, a sacrificial life in verses thirty to thirty-two and uh, a call to sobriety in verses 33 to 34. First, a hope-filled practice. And Paul writes in, in verse 29, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on their behalf? Now, um, if you find that passage confusing, you are not alone. Uh, uh, one commentator I read last week mentions that there are over 200 different interpretations of this one single verse. It's a puzzling passage. And in all reality, we, we're, we're, uh, we, we just aren't certain about what Paul is talking about here. Uh, Paul knew what he was talking about here. The Corinthians knew what Paul was talking about here. But we just are not certain about what Paul is talking about here. Uh, There are a few passages of Scripture uh, where this is the case. Not many, but there's a few. Uh, And that's okay. Uh, There might be some things in the Bible and in the Christian life that we don't quite understand. Uh, But we also shouldn't shy away from those things and and, and not address the things that we have a hard time understanding. And so uh, as we do that with this text, uh, let's consider some principles that we should follow as we engage difficult texts like this. First, we need to remember that ultimately the Bible is clear. Uh, as, as Protestant Christians, we wholeheartedly believe in the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. Uh, now, that doesn't mean that all passages, all the passages in Scripture are equally clear or plain in their meaning. That's, that's certainly not the case. Rather, it means that those things that are necessary for us to know and believe and obey for salvation are clearly communicated in Scripture. But sometimes we come across Scripture texts like this, like this one, that are not clear. Uh, Therefore, and, and here's another important principle that we need to remember, we must allow the clear texts in Scripture inform the way we read unclear, the few unclear texts that there are. Uh, This is a fundamental practice, a a fundamental principle rather, of interpretation for the Bible. And this is something you always need to consider when you're reading the Bible. We must allow clear passages to help us understand unclear passages. And in this particular circumstance, that means that we allow texts that teach us about the nature of baptism and about the nature of salvation and about uh, life after death, that we must let those clear passages that speak to those realities inform the way we read this text from Paul's writings and the other apostles' writings, we know that there's no way that Paul is condoning some sort of practice of baptism in the place of dead people uh, who died outside the faith so that they will not meet judgment when they return. We know that that's not how baptism works, and we also know that when death comes, a uh, man is appointed to die once, and then comes judgment. And so that, that cannot be what this text means. Clear texts always inform the way that we read unclear texts. In addition to that, another very important principle of interpretation is this. We mustn't use disputed and unclear texts like this to establish an entire theology or practice. Okay, and this is very important because doing so is, is, a, is a distinguishing mark of cults. Cults often, almost always, take an unclear or disputed text And they claim to have the one true interpretation of it. And they base their theology and their practice uh, on their interpretation of an unclear, disputed text. And they say things like, you know, for for the last 2,000 years, the church has greatly misunderstood the Bible. uh, But our group, under the leadership of anointed leader so-and-so, finally has it right. Uh, We practice baptism on the behalf of the dead. Uh, Your church doesn't do that? Well, your church must be a, a false church. It's a, it's a classic move. Cults do this uh, w- without fail almost every single time. The, the Marcionites in the in the second century, a second century cult, they did this with this j- very same passage. The Mormons uh, do this with this, this passage, the very same thing today. And other cults do it with other unclear, disputed passages of scripture. But but again, we just don't know precisely what Paul is talking about here. There we therefore we have absolutely no justification whatsoever for making whatever this practice is a normal practice for the church. Cults take unclear, disputed texts, and they build an entire theology and practice on them. As Orthodox Christians, we allow clear texts to inform our understanding of unclear texts, and we don't build theologies or practices on unclear and disputed texts. Are you with me? All right. Now, with that said, there have been a number of very plausible explanations uh, as to what this text could mean. Uh, with there being over 200 different interpretations of this text, there are about 30 to 40 interpretations that uh, that are given by sound Orthodox theologians and scholars. And amongst those, there are a few that kind of rise to the top. There's probably about five to 10 that, that typically rise to the top. Uh, and I'll give just a few. Um, there, there's a sort of classic, more traditional understanding of what Paul is talking about. And, and that is that Paul is literally talking about a practice that the church in Corinth implemented wherein Christians were baptized on behalf of their deceased relatives or on on behalf of converts who died before their baptism. Uh, And this is a very natural reading of the text, uh, obviously. And Orthodox Christians who read the text that way are very, very quick to point out that Paul neither condemns nor condones the practice. Uh, He just mentions it as a supporting point for his overall argument for the resurrection of the dead. He might have condemned it in an earlier letter. You may or may not know this, but it seems that there were actually three letters uh, written to the Corinthians, uh, and that the first one was actually lost, uh, and that would mean that what we're reading here, 1 Corinthians, is actually 2 Corinthians, and, and the 2 Corinthians the letter 2 Corinthians is actually 3 Corinthians. Uh, and perhaps Paul discussed this baptism uh, for the dead at length in this earlier letter. We don't know. The problem, though, with that understanding of this text is that based on what Paul's, uh, what we know about Paul's and the rest of the apostles' understanding of baptism, it hardly seems that Paul would casually refer to, ba- uh, to this baptism for the dead in such a casual way and use this practice as a support for his argument for the resurrection. The apostles would have been appalled by this practice, and they, they would have rebuked it sharply. They would not have used it as an example uh, for a practice that is consistent with belief in the resurrection. That's, that, that explanation doesn't seem very likely for that reason. Another possible explanation is that Paul is not talking about the sacrament of baptism at all. He's actually talking about a baptism or an immersion into a life of suffering that he and other Christians faced on a regular basis. Those who read the text this way, they look at the sort of following verses uh, uh, after verse um uh, 29 here, uh, and where Paul talks about his own suffering and his, uh, the possibility of death he faces on a regular basis. And they say, we should interpret this verse based on the following verses. Um, and, 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 and that would me- mean that uh, Paul's um, uh, referring to baptism uh, on behalf of the dead is, is talking about his immersion into a life of suffering. This, is, of course, is, is a very comfortable reading of the text for us uh, as Orthodox Christians. That's, uh, it, this is a way that would agree with our theology, and, and we'd be rather comfortable with this. Um, the, the problem is that you kind of have to stretch the text to read it that way. It's not a very natural reading of the text. It seems unlikely that Paul is referring to something along those lines because it just doesn't seem to be what the text is referring to. Uh, another more recent interpretation of this text from a, from a scholar named Anthony Thistleton. This seems to be a big winner uh, for many. And that reads the text as saying that some Christians in Corinth have been baptized because, because of the dead. Uh, meaning that perhaps there were some at Corinth who had become Christians and been baptized because they had recently had loved ones who had died. And because their loved ones had died, they were motivated to become Christians and to be baptized in order to be reunited with their loved ones at the resurrection of the dead. Uh, And this has the merit of being a natural reading of the text and also kind of fitting in with an orthodox understanding of baptism and life after death and judgment and, and salvation and the like. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, we simply don't know. The Corinthians knew, Paul knew, God knows, but, but we don't know precisely what Paul is talking about here. But even though we might be uncertain about what Paul means when he refers to this particular practice, baptism on, b- on behalf of the dead, we can still clearly understand the point that Paul is raising here. Paul's main point is not to discuss this particular practice of baptism. His point is... His point here is that whatever this particular practice the Corinthians were implementing was, it was inconsistent with the belief that there is no resurrection of the dead coming. Whatever the practice he's referring to is, it's simply supporting, it's a supporting point for his main point, his main argument. He's simply saying that it makes no sense at all to avail oneself to this practice if the dead are not raised. He's saying that those who avail themselves to this particular practice are only doing so because they have set their hopes on the reality that they will be raised from the dead when Christ returns. Without that hope, whatever this practice is, it's pointless. And not only that, but but I would venture to say that, that this is the point of baptism in general. Uh, not, not just this particular practice of baptism referred to in this text, but the point of baptism in general for Christians is to announce our hope and belief in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting that we will receive when Christ returns. We avail ourselves to the practice of baptism because we are those who have died with Christ and we have set our hopes on being raised with him uh, on, on the day of his return. Therefore, in the spirit of Paul's argument here, baptism in general is pointless if there's no resurrection. Obeying Christ's command to be baptized, obeying any of Christ's commands is a worthless endeavor if the dead are not raised. Because if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, he shouldn't be obeyed regarding baptism. And if Christ has not been raised, then giving ourselves over to a practice symbolic of our own resurrection is pointless. And not only that, that's not only true of baptism, that's true of every Christian practice. Why why observe the Lord's day? Why listen to the preaching of God's word? Why observe the Lord's supper? Why make the sacrifice of waking up every morning to pray? Why give your time and your money and your talent to the cause of Christ if the dead are not raised? All of that would be absolutely worthless if Christ has not been raised and if we will not be raised with him when he returns. And Paul goes on to argue just that. He says, if the dead are not raised, not only is this practice of baptism a worthless endeavor, but also living the kind of sacrificial life that Christians are called to in baptism is a worthless endeavor. If the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then why live sacrificially as a Christian? And to get to this point, Paul writes, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, you may or may not know this, but Paul suffered much in his life and his work as as a pastor of the church, as an apostle. He says here that, that he is in danger all the time. He faces the possibility of death every day. In Ephesus, he fought with beasts. And that doesn't mean that he literally fought with beasts at Ephesus. Uh, What he's saying, if if you read Acts 19, you'll see the people of the city of Ephesus acted fairly beastly. They rioted and and they tore the city apart because they were so angry. They almost tore Paul apart because they were so angry about the message he was preaching. And yet he endures it all. And for for, for what? Why does he endure it? As he said in in, in verse 10 of, of 1 Corinthians 15 here, he worked harder than any of the other apostles. For what? In 2 Corinthians 11, he even describes in what ways he, he worked harder than any of the leaders in the church. He writes this. He says, Are, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, and often near death. Listen to this. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and in thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Why would Paul and his companions face such dangers? Why would he risk his life and court death every day if there, if if, he would never, if there was no bodily resurrection? Christ's resurrection is the basis for his life's work. The resurrection of the dead at Christ's return is Paul's great hope. It is the aim and goal of his life, so much so that you can in no way make sense of Paul's life if there's no resurrection of the body. All his work, all his sacrifice is absolutely meaningless if there's no resurrection. Everything Paul does in his life is born from the hope that Christ will return to raise his people from the dead and that he will live with him forever on a glorified earth. And it's all born of the assurance that his hope will be granted because Christ rose again 2,000 years ago as the first fruits of our resurrection. And our lives should be formed and shaped and based on the same hope and assurance you know, sometimes I, I fear that our presentations of the gospel and our understanding of the Christian life would lead us to believe that, that becoming a Christian makes life easier, not harder. And maybe in some ways it, 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 it has for you. Maybe in some ways it does. Becoming a Christian may have caused you to stop committing certain sins that, that you were committing before that were causing you much trouble in life before. Maybe you stop getting drunk every weekend. Maybe you stop being promiscuous, and this has led to certain things becoming easier in life. Maybe you're a better employee now because you're a Christian, so that's made work life a a bit better for you. Maybe you're a better husband or wife or parent or sibling because of it, and so your family life is better as a result of being a Christian. Being a Christian gives us uh, the benefit of of a quieted conscience, an eased, quieted mind. Our guilt is taken away. Our sin is atoned for. Therefore, we'll not, we're not guilty. We're free from guilt. We're no longer in our sins. Maybe things like that become easier. Maybe things like that become better. But many things in the Christian life, uh, many things in life become harder when you become a Christian. Many actually face their families being torn apart because they become Christians. Christians. Many have faced being fired from their jobs because they've become Christians. What what happens then? Is it worth it? If the dead are not raised, then no. But since Christ has been raised and since his resurrection means that ours is coming, then yes. Maybe we'll not face the, the kind of sufferings that Paul and the other apostles faced for the faith. But nonetheless, every Christian is called to a sacrificial life. We're all called to a life of sacrifice, of self-denial. We're all called to pick up our crosses daily and follow Jesus. Like Paul, we, we sacrifice for the sake of others so that others can, can, can uh, have a better life and so that they can know the good news that Christ uh, came for them and that he died for their, uh, for their sins and rose again as the first fruits of our resurrection. We live sacrificially for the sake of of God's people and for other people, our neighbors. We live sacrificially for the sake of our spouses and children. We live sacrificially for the neighborhood. All because we're called to bring the reality of the resurrection to bear upon our life in the church, in our families, in our neighborhoods right now. And maybe for you, that that means sacrificing your your dream home so that you can move to or, or stay in an inner city neighborhood that needs a gospel presence. Maybe for you, that means sacrificing a job that you'd really like so that you can be present, more present to your family and to your church family, to your neighborhood. Maybe for you, that means not buying that car that you'd really like to buy so that you can be more generous to your church and to the cause of Christ. Maybe for you, like it did with Paul, that means remaining single so that you can give your undivided attention to a certain calling that God has put on your life. Or if you're a parent, maybe that means sacrificing uh, parts of your life, your beloved social life. You're uh, you're sacrificing your productivity at work so that you can be uh, there for your children, adequately discipling and caring for your children. Maybe for you, that means sacrificing the life that you've always wanted for the sake of the Great Commission. Sacrificing the American dream, selling all that you have, and, and giving your life to church planting amongst an unreached people group. Or maybe it just simply means continuing to do what you're doing already and persevering with patient endurance in what you're doing already. For all of you, for for many of you, you, you serve this church so faithfully. You serve in this church and as an extension of this church so faithfully, week in and week out. For those who show up to serve in hospitality, for those who serve in family ministry, for those who serve in the gathering ministry, For those who show up to the Victory Project every week. For those who are working so hard to get safe families going in Dayton. For those who come out to family nights at Ruskin every month. Those who are spending hours every week as Young Life leaders. Maybe it just means continuing to do that faithfully. Even when you're weary and you're tired. Even when you don't feel like it. Even when it's a sacrifice. And Paul is saying that living that way makes absolutely no sense at all if Christ has not been raised and if we will not be raised with him when he returns. That's what he's getting at when he says, humanly speaking, or or, or to put it another way, if we did these things for merely human reasons, we'd be utterly foolish. It's utterly stupid to choose discomfort and sacrifice now if the dead are not raised. And in verse 32, Paul presses this point to its logical conclusion. He says, if the, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. It's a well-known slogan in Paul's day. It's also a quote from Isaiah twenty-two thirteen. 13. Uh, if you're a boomer or a, or a Gen Xer, uh, it's kind of like that phrase, uh, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. The dead are not raised, and we might as well live a life of sex, drugs, and rock and roll. If you're if you're a millennial, uh, this might be the equivalent of saying, if the dead are not raised, YOLO, you only live once. You might as well party till you puke. Be promiscuous. Spend money carelessly. Distract and numb yourself with endless amounts of entertainment. Rack up tons of debt, store up as many comforts and pleasures as you can in this life. YOLO, if there's no resurrection, then Christianity is a lie. And if Christianity is a lie, then why do anything else than than pursue a life of pleasure? So Paul is saying here in verse 32, but then he, he almost immediately rejects that logic. His sacrifices as an apostle are not in vain. Your sacrifices as a follower of Christ are not in vain. What, what Paul proclaimed and sacrificed for and suffered for is true. There is resurrection coming. We know there is because Christ has been raised from the dead and he has been raised as the firstfruits of the great harvest of resurrection to come. That's what we looked at last week. Therefore, Paul closes this portion of his argument in 1 Corinthians 15 with a call to sobriety. He writes, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up. From your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Now I don't know how much familiarity y- you have with this letter, 1 Corinthians. But in it, we see that this local church in Corinth was an absolute disaster. There was rampant sexual immorality. One guy was even sleeping with his stepmom. And the pastors in Corinth, they weren't doing anything at all about it. They weren't calling this man to repentance. They weren't administering church discipline. And many of them were even getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Uh, The wealthy were arriving early to the the church gathering, and and they were overeating and overdrinking and and not leaving enough for their poorer brothers and sisters who arrived later. They were living according to that uh, eat and drink, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, YOLO kind of ethic. And so do you see the contrast that Paul is setting up here? He's, he's saying, if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised and we won't be either. Therefore, eat and drink for tomorrow we die. But since he has been raised, then we will be too when he returns. Therefore, wake up from your drunken stupor. Do not go on sinning. He's literally saying, since there's a resurrection, sober up and stop sinning. Sober up and stop committing sexual immorality. Sober up and stop getting drunk at the Lord's Supper. Sober up and stop being lulled to sleep by the comforts of the sage. Sober up and stop putting your hope in the American dream. Sober up and stop looking at pornography. Sober up and stop living as those who have no hope of resurrection. This debauchery and this rampant sin is a result of having an inadequate understanding of and therefore an inadequate hope in the resurrection. And that's what he's talking about when he says, some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Some some in your midst have no knowledge of the coming resurrection because the way that you're living, because the, the theology that you're professing, the way that you're living, some have no knowledge of what God is going to do with us and with our bodies and with this world when Christ returns. And, and to be clear, Paul's not saying sober up and stop sinning so that you can earn enough merit to receive the resurrection in the last day. That's not what he's saying. The resurrection of our bodies is a gift, one that will be given to us by God in Christ Jesus. It's God's gracious act of salvation. He's not saying sober up and stop sinning so that you can earn enough merit to receive the resurrection. Rather, he's saying since you have the hope of the resurrection, since you have this great hope, sober up and stop sinning. Since Christ died for your sins, Why would you want to go on living in what put your Savior in the tomb? And since he rose on the third day as the first fruits of your resurrection, since that is your hope, stop sinning. Since you trust Christ in the resurrection of your body in the last days, your most certain hope, stop sinning. Sober up, you see, because we're called to live as resurrection people right now. We're called to live by a resurrection ethic and resurrection power right now. God has given us the presence and power of the Holy Spirit who is, as Paul puts it in, in Ephesians 1.14, he's the down payment of the resurrection of our bodies and the life everlasting that we will receive at Christ's return. He is, the Holy Spirit is, the one who raised Christ up from the dead and he is the one who will raise us up on the last day and he lives in us now. He's present in us and with us now. The Spirit has already included us in God's cosmic renewal project that he began in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the coming resurrection gives shape and hope and purpose for our life right now. It makes sense of our life right now. The the local church is called to be a foretaste of the resurrection that is to come. That's what N.T. Wright, that N.T. Wright quote in your bulletin is all about. He says, our task in the present is to live as resurrection people between Easter and the final day. Without, with our Christian life, both corporate and individual, both in worship and mission, as a sign of the first and a foretaste of the second. The way that we share life as a local church now. The way that we preach and pray and celebrate baptism and the Lord's Supper, the way that we walk with one another in relationship and relate to one another on a daily basis and care for one another and serve one another and pour ourselves out for one another. The way that we interact with our neighbors in the neighborhood, the way that we serve our city, the way that we evangelize, the way that we pursue mercy and justice in our city, the way that we raise our kids the way that we approach marriage and treat our spouses, the way that we work in our vocations, it's all meant to bear witness to the reality that Christ is making all things new. It's all to show the city of Dayton what the city of God is like. It's all to show the city of Dayton what life will be like for God's people when Christ returns. It's meant to be a foretaste of what life will look like when Christ returns to glorify our bodies and this earth with his presence. It's all meant to be a foretaste of the resurrection of the dead and the life to come. That's what the local church is. Local church is a sign and a foretaste. That's what you are, Christian. You are a sign and a foretaste of the resurrection life that we receive in Christ Jesus. And to be a community that acts as a sign and a foretaste of the resurrection requires that we give ourselves to hope-filled practices. It requires that we live lives of sacrifice. It requires that we sober up and repent of our sin. And it's worth it, you see, because one day Christ will return and we will see our Savior who loved us and who gave himself for us. And when we see him, we will be made like him because we will see him as he is, First John 3, 2 tells us. He will raise our bodies like his was raised 2,000 years ago. And we will live with him on a glorified earth. This earth will be made new. And we will live with him on this glorified earth when he returns And we know that this is true because he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And when he was raised, he was raised as the first fruits of that coming resurrection. His resurrection was the dawning of that great day when heaven and earth will be one and when we will live in the shalom of his most wonderful presence forever. The resurrection of the dead makes sense of our lives as Christians. So I ask you, is that what makes sense of your life? Is that what makes you tick? Is that what gives you purpose? Is the aim and purpose of your life the resurrection of the dead? Or is it being comfortable now? Are you devoting yourself to to hope-filled practices now? Are you devoting yourself to a sacrificial life now? Are you continuing to repent and grow and living a life of sobriety and holiness now? All because you live in the great hope and expectation of the resurrection of the body when Christ returns. Take it from Paul. He said in, in Romans 8, 18, I consider that the sufferings, the sacrifices, the, the, the sobriety, the, the, the hope-filled practices now, committing ourselves completely in sacrifice, sacrifice and suffering now, all of that in the present time, it's not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us when we see Christ face to face whatever sacrifices we make now, whatever difficulties we face now for the sake of the Christian life weigh far less on the scale of eternity. The resurrection of the dead should make sense of our lives. Veritas, let's pray together.